0: damage from the cybercrime economy specifically was around $5.2 trillion, so it's significantly more than the economy itself.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Joe checks in with Curtis Minder from GroupSense. They're going to dig a little deeper into some of the topics that Curtis discussed in his previous previous appearance on our show, so stick around for that. So how do you train people to recognize and resist social engineering? Here are some things people think. Test them, and if they fall for a test scam, fire them. Or other people say, if someone flunks the test, shame them. Instead of employee of the month, it's doofus of the day. Or maybe you pass out a gift card to the one who gets the A-plus for skepticism in the face of fishing. So how about it? What do you think? Carrots or sticks? What would you do? Later in the show, we'll hear what the experts at Know Before have to say. They're the sponsors of this podcast. Joe, uh, I want to start things off for us this week with uh, a story. So uh, I'm sitting here uh, at... uh, you know, CyberWire, intergalactic headquarters. <laughs> uh, and those are
2: some pretty far-reaching headquarters, Dave.
1: They are. They are. Uh, I think uh, it's exciting. They're building uh, a new uh, segment of the monorail uh, this week, so uh, <laughs> hopefully that'll be that'll be finished soon. Uh, to, you know, so we don't have to use our segways to get from building to building. So I'm sitting here and my phone rings. It's sitting on my desk, and uh, the caller ID comes up, and it's my sister. Huh. Now, it is not common for my sister to call me. I see my sister every couple of weeks. I have a good relationship with my sister, but it's unusual for us to call each other. We just, we're not chatty in that way. Right. So this gets my attention. And I answer the phone, and uh, it is my father calling me from my sister's phone. I see. Now, I should mention that my sister uh, lives with my parents. Okay. And helps support them. Uh, my parents are. Elderly, they are in their mid 80s and uh, they live in an over 55 community, a lovely condo. But my sister's there and she uh, provides a lot of good support for them. So my father is on the line and he says, "Uh, Dave, someone called me on my phone and they say they are from Verizon and they say that someone has tried to purchase two iPhones on my account and that unless I give them a bunch of information, I'm going to be responsible for paying for these two iPhones on my account. Uh He said, your sister is on the phone with them right now. What should I do? (laughs) Right. You should hang up. (laughs) This is exactly what I said. (laughs) I said, dad, hang up. I said, well, really? They're trying to connect us to the the legal department, and it sounds really dad, hang up. Just hang up. Okay. (laughs) I I hear him call out to my sister. Hang up. Just hang up. So they hang up. So uh, now I, I explain to my father what is likely going on here, that these are most likely scammers, right. most certainly scammers, <laughs> who have who have called him, and sure enough, the information they're trying to get from him is the kind of stuff that you would try to get if you're trying to get into the account. Right. They're asking him for the last four digits of his social security number. Yep. Things like that, right? And they're saying that they're doing this to verify the account, but of course they're doing it to try to break into the account. Sure. So now my father is worried because he doesn't know how successful they were. Uh, How far along did they get? So he wants to reach out to his bank. He wants to reach out to Verizon to check in with them. So this leads us to part two of the story, which is... This story goes on. Oh this <laughs> We're just getting started, Joe. Oh, okay, good. So <laughs>
2: Well then I'll so... in.
1: <laughs> No no. Yes, exactly. Find yourself a comfortable chair, fix yep. yourself a lovely beverage. So my father says to me, Well, I want to call Verizon to see what's going on and verify that my account is indeed secure. Right. And I say, All right, well he says, What number should I call? So what do I do, Joe? I Google Verizon technical support, uh-huh. and what pops up? Well, the first thing that pops up is a phone number. Right. Well, as you and I have talked about, we can't trust that phone number. No. Right? No, <laughs> you, you can't, can't trust you, that phone you, number.
2: You can't trust that phone number on a Google search. That, that could, be, could very well be an ad that someone has paid for so that when you call Verizon, you get them. I've had that happen with Comcast.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I don't trust that, but I do see several links in my Google search to Verizon tech support. Mm-hmm. Really? aha okay great so I go to Verizon actually I don't click on any of the links there I go to verizon.com right. look on tech support and guess what I find on Verizon support page Joe uh, a scam alert mm close there okay. are several options for interacting with verizon's support people okay. uh, you can live chat with them right all right this is not an option for my father he can't he, he he can't handle this it's, I'
2: it's just I detest this method as well, by the way.
1: yeah, I'm in yeah. your it's dad's just,
2: camp on this.
1: It's, it's too much for him. You know, he's, he's not a technically savvy person, and uh, so it just you – know, it, it wouldn't be fair to, to subject him to that. But most interesting is that there's not an obvious way to call them. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I, I later learned that you, if from your Verizon device, you can call 611, and right. that will put you in touch with Verizon tech support. This was something I learned after the fact. But while I was on this tech support page, one of the options, and this is the one that sort of got my goat, was leave us your phone number, and when we're available, someone from Verizon support will call you. Well, that's just what we went through with the scammers. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> the, the, the last thing in the world my father is going to do is accept a call from Verizon tech support. How do we know that it's them and it's not just the scammers calling back? Right. Exactly. Right.
2: There's, there's, there's no way to know that. Uh,
1: I was very frustrated,
2: Joe. It, that is frustrating. That is frustrating. There has, <laughs> it, there's going to have to be a new system that's developed for this. You know, we'll call you back and we'll give you a number that you enter in a queue, right? So they give you like a three-digit or a four-digit number. You write that number down. Then you dial 611. And when it says enter your code, you enter your code and you go right to the representative. Right. But I am sure that system does not exist right now.
1: Well, but also imagine, Joe, this is what I I try to put myself in. Imagine the 85-year-old version of yourself navigating that sort of thing, right? Irritating. Yeah, so here's what happens in the end. My father contacts his bank. Everything's cool with his bank. Nobody hit his credit cards or anything like that. My mother goes to the Verizon store. Mm -hmm. She goes old school, right? right? She gets in her car. She drives to the Verizon store. And the nice person at the Verizon store is very helpful, very patient with her. They look in the account. Sure enough, they can tell someone was trying to access the account. Right? Someone was trying to trigger you know, account reset types of things. But it was thwarted. It did not go through. They hung up in the nick of time. Good. In addition, the kind person at the Verizon store put a pin on their account. I was going
2: to go there, Dave. And I'm (laughs) so glad that that the person at the Verizon store mentioned this because this is one of the best things you can do to secure your wireless account.
1: Right, right. So now both my mother and my father who share this account, they have the pin with which the account is more secured.
2: Remind them never to give that out on, on an inbound call, that they right. only give that out when they're calling Verizon, not when Verizon is calling them.
1: Mm, good point. Now, in the meantime, my, my mother got a little frazzled because all of this having happened has planted the seed in my parents' minds that they are vulnerable, Right. Right. So my mother gets uh, what I would consider to be routine kind of spammy text messages and things on her phone. And now she's really worried about this. So she calls me. She calls my brother. She says, what's going on? Did someone hack my phone? Are they listening in on me? I don't know. That's interesting
2: because your yeah. mom should listen to this episode because my next story is about exactly this kind of thing <laughs> but but we'll get to that in time but you go right. you go on so so my kind brother takes my
1: mom back to the Verizon store just to put her mind at ease right, right? the two of them go to the store Speak to another customer service person who, again, very patient. So hats off to the people at the local Verizon store. Very patient. They go back into her account. Everything's fine. Nothing's bad. So all's well that ends well. But I just, so is a story worth sharing that because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are in a similar situation where you've, you're at that station in life where uh, your parents need a little more help with some of these technical kinds of things, yep. and you just worry because they're they're kind of sitting ducks. And I feel so lucky that um, you know both my sister was there to help support, and my brother was there to support, and obviously I was there to support. So right. you know, between having three children, my yes. <laughs> parents were able to uh, to thwart this, but. Not everyone is in such a good
2: position. No, uh, that's true. Now, let me ask you a question. Did, and maybe you don't know this, but when they called, did they address your father by name? Did they say, Mr. Bittner? I believe so. Really? I believe so. So they yeah. have the information.
1: Yeah, huh. I believe so. Now, who knows, you know, my father, my father could have very well have filled out a sweepstakes entry or something. Yeah. Had his name and his phone number, you know, win a new car or something like that, you know. Right. Ooh, I like
2: a new car. Now, I, I, yeah, (laughs)
1: there's, there's all kinds of ways to, to, that That that, information
2: information is is out there. It's out there. That doesn't surprise me. It's not, not surprising at all.
1: So I share the story, uh, (laughs) for our audience as just a reminder and, uh, Maybe some valuable lessons, like I say, all's well that ends well, and I think things have settled down. But uh, it can happen to anybody. Oh, oh, and I want to, I want to say that perhaps uh, most importantly, one of the things uh, I was on the phone with my mother, right, and she shared with me. She said, she said, your father is so embarrassed. He feels so. Ashamed that this happened to him. And I said, Mom, you have to tell dad, you know, get him on the phone with me. He, there's nothing to be ashamed of. This can happen to anybody. This could happen to me. It could happen to you. It could happen to any of us. So there is no shame. He did the right thing in, in pausing and calling, you know, me and, and uh, my sister and my brother. So. We'll just hammer that point home there is yeah. no shame in this so get that thought out of your head
2: yeah first off he actually did what he should have done he called somebody else he talked to somebody else got good advice called you and said right. and you said hang up the phone and you convinced him that that was a case that was the right thing to do to yeah. to reach out to somebody else for help when you're in that situation so he he didn't do anything wrong and even if he would have gotten scammed out of things still you're not the one at fault here. You're being scammed by malicious actors who are actively looking to do you harm for their own benefit. I understand. I get it. Believe me. I feel stupid when I look back on things. Before the show, we were talking about an incident where I, I just didn't understand something was going on in a organizational relationship. And yeah. I, I look back on that now and I go, that was just stupid. Yeah. But it wasn't stupid. It was just uh, it was just ignorance, you know? Yeah. And-, yeah. and These kind of things happen, and I know it's embarrassing. I know it's embarrassing, but you have to have the courage to stand up and go, this is what happened to me. There are things you can do to prevent it, but really, I don't think we need to be blaming victims on this. I think we need to be blaming these scammers. They're actively going out to harm people.
1: Right. All right. Well, (laughs) that is my long story this week.
2: Joe, what do you have for us? My story today actually comes from a listener named Chris Concanon, and he has a blog Chris is a solutions engineer for a tech company, and he's also studying to get his uh, Certified Ethical Hacker Certification. And what's interesting is that this kind of ties into your story, because Chris started receiving a number of curious text messages, he calls them, a few of them. And they came from different numbers in the US, and each one was similar, talking about an Amazon rewards card being shipped to him, right? Like (laughs) he has a quote in here, shipped, your Amazon package with $100 loyalty reward will be delivered... June 9th, track at, and then it has a URL with a unique identifier at the end of it, Mm. okay? Now, we often say don't click the link, right? Right. And this is one of the reasons why we say don't click the link. And even if a company you trust is actually sending you a link or a company you know about is actually sending you a link, very often when you look at that link, there is a unique identifier in that URL that is tied directly to not just your email address, but to this specific email that was sent to you. Hmm. And these unique identifiers are long. They can identify everything about the event. And then when you click on it, they know number one is a valid email. They know what kind of email you responded to. And they, Mm -hmm. they can kind of build a profile on you using this. So there's multiple reasons not to click the link. But one of the biggest reasons not to click the link is because it's probably malicious. The links in this story were coming from g8smv.info. So Chris had a couple of uh, red flags. He said, number one, I rarely order things from Amazon. Being that he's not really a big Amazon user, a $100 loyalty card is not really something in the cards for him. Now, if they were to send this to me or to my wife... We order a lot of stuff from Amazon, right? (laughs) You'd be
1: wondering why they weren't sending you a bigger loyalty card. That's
2: right. Only $100? (laughs) Come on, Jeff. (laughs) Mr. Bezos, up your game. But the text came from a U.S. phone number and not a short code, right? Like usually Amazon sends a short code out. When you get a text from them. Or the number comes from a sh- uh, one of those shortened codes, like like Twitter's is 40404. And I can't remember what Amazon's is, but it comes from like a, a five or six-digit number, not a US-based phone number. So he's actually getting texts from these phone numbers. And then finally, he goes in and he, and he investigates who owns the domain, right? This g 8 info, And it's registered to Namecheap and the registrant's address is in Panama. Now, Amazon's based in the U.S. and their registration, their domain is registered to their hostmaster in Nevada. So it's not from Panama. So obviously, this is something else. Of course, this domain could be anything, but he doesn't think it's Amazon, and it isn't. So he does a little bit more digging into the website, and he finds out that the IP address is registered to Alibaba. Now, Alibaba, if you're not familiar with them, the Chinese competitor to Amazon. If if you want to think of uh, the Chinese Amazon, that's Alibaba. They have the same kind of storefront, but they also have a lot of cloud hosting services like Amazon does. So here's what he knows so far. Somebody's registered this domain, and they're paying for services to be hosted on Alibaba's cloud services. Now, when he clicks the link or investigates the link, where does it go? It doesn't try to do anything. It's interesting. It just has a redirect. He's doing this on a Linux machine. And he's using a utility called curl. And if you just enter curl with a switch dash V on it, on a Linux machine, that will show you what's going on behind the scenes, right? It doesn't just download the page for you. It actually tells you what's going on. And he finds out that there is a 302 redirect, which is just an HTTP code for, okay, you loaded this page. Now I want you to go to this other page. And it takes him to Google.com. So his whole question is, what the heck is going on here? And Mm -hmm. here's what Chris is surmising is going on. He thinks somebody has gotten a hold of a list of cell phone data, and they're trying to establish which of these cell phones is active and which of these cell phone users is vulnerable to an attack and which of these users is vulnerable to a fish that uses the hook of an Amazon reward card and just tracking the reward card. What's interesting about this is if you have two-factor authentication set up with Amazon where they send you a code, then you could probably use this as a means of, of phishing those credentials. Now, when we talk about multi-factor authentication and using two factors, we often say that using a code uh, sent to you over an SMS is the least secure option here, but it's still many, many times better than doing nothing. So I don't want uh, right. to seem like I'm saying this is bad, don't use the SMS method. I I do want to say, if you have another method, use that. If SMS is all that's available to you, please use that instead of nothing. I want to make that clear. So let's say I've got a live one. Let's say I know someone clicked this link. Now I'm going to send out or build a phishing kit, right, for Amazon credentials. And I'm going to have a a landing page that looks almost exactly like Amazon. And I'm going to ask somebody to log into their Amazon account. And I'm going to show them the fake landing page. And then I'm going to, behind the scenes, actually log into their Amazon account. And if I get the Amazon two-factor authentication screen, then I'm going to show the user, enter the two-factor code we just sent you. The user's going to get the code via SMS. They're going to enter it, and I'm going to pass it through to the Amazon page and actually log in and then have control of their account.
1: Right. And right.
2: that's that's kind of what Chris is thinking is going to be going on here in the background.
1: Hmm. So they're kind of – they're pre-filtering people exactly. in, in, a, in an initial step to save time when they hit them with the, the larger attack potentially.
2: Yeah, he does a cost-benefit analysis of this attack, and he estimates that the cost of sending a single text message is $0.05. Cents. I'll bet it's much lower than that. Hmm. I'll bet it's much, much lower than, than five cents to send it. It might cost them some amount of money, but just putting these text messages out there, I, I think that's probably almost free. Text messaging now is so ubiquitous and so easy to send. You know, but SMS is a cheap and efficient way to send information. It's not secure in any way, shape, or form. It is a good way to disseminate information quickly. And it's there's a very robust infrastructure for it. So I think five cents is a really, really high estimate. I think it's Probably fractions of a penny to, per sms message you 're sending out overall okay so it's it 's a really low cost uh, attack and and yeah they're they 're validating the accounts or the the information that they bought, and at the same time they're generating a list of people that get hooked by amazon phishing
1: well it 's an interesting analysis for sure, and uh, we will have a link to that in the show notes
2: yes, thanks to Chris for sending that to me I appreciate yeah. it
1: yeah yeah it 's a good one yeah, thanks for sending that in. All right, Joe, those are our stories. It is time to move on to our catch of the day.
2: Dave, the catch of the day comes from Reddit user Dasha Potapov. That's their Reddit username. And it's from r slash And it is the beginning of this person scam baiting, but it's a really funny phishing email. So uh, my favorite part about it is it starts with the text. This message is from a trusted sender. That's just the text in the email, right? Well, there it is. So you can trust it. Dave, I think you should read this. All right.
1: Well, uh, let's see. Let's uh, spice this one up a bit. Uh, okay. Since uh, we're, we're, we're winning something here. So here we go. Dear recipient of $3,899,478. This message is from a trusted sender. Dear recipient, you've been waiting for this for a long time. Until you get the money, what stops you checking on what I sent you previously? We have credited the total amount of three million. donated to your account. But you don't have to access the Platinum deposits to allow it. The account was created for the exclusive use of residents, not an account that has external amount. So we now created the ATM card to help you all during the quarantine period. Why can't you use what you have now to get the bigger one processed? Remember, you still have a brand new car X3 BMW 2019 award, which is added to the file attached to your account. And the bank confirmed to send it to you in 72 hours and multiple emails has been sent all to no response hope you're not infected all you (laughs) need now is this atm card with a daily limit of less than eight thousand dollars per withdrawal while the account is stored here for security reasons to prevent money laundering and all kinds of questions that may involve fees from your state government taxes think about this for your own good time waits for no one Stop looking for advice from who is holding you back on this The domestic enemy is everywhere They never want you to grow but the crow Return answer to the service option that classifies your needs as the necessary rate for the shipping One thing assures you that you will not regret what you pay to obtain your right I promise and also remind you to start saving money for old age Because surviving on monthly wages or salary will never get you anywhere after paying your tax Think about it, time wait for no one I want the best for you and will never oppose the rules and principles of any laws. I am an honest and legitimate person, just as you are. Try to convince yourself. Hope we can still take on the mobile phone or WhatsApp. I am sure they will love us 100% safe. Very respectful. Henry Chitky, executive, vice president,
2: and promotions. This is brilliant. I mean, it's it's so bad. Uh, First (laughs) off, the amount. Do you think the amount has anything to do with make to make it more believable? It's three well, million th- eight hundred. I think people
1: tend to be attracted to very specific numbers rather than just big round numbers because that makes them think that there's something more to this. The specificity of it, I think, is right. is a, is a factor.
2: Also, in the middle of this, that there is an attempt to isolate the person. Stop looking for advice from who is holding you back on this. Mm-hmm. The domestic enemy is everywhere. <laughs> so, I mean, they're really trying to turn you against your family here. Don't listen to those people. They don't know what's yeah. best for you. Yeah,
1: I like that. Right in the middle of this, they just drop a "Hope you're not infected." Like, right.
2: <laughs> it's
1: like, listen, guys, we gotta we gotta drop some COVID nineteen stuff in here. That's the that's right. the keep hot thing right now. Yeah, keep it current. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, boy. All right. Well, uh, that is a fun one. And uh, thanks to uh, that Reddit user for uh, providing that and sharing that with everybody. That was a fun one to read. And that is our catch of the day. So let's return to our sponsor know Before's question. Carrots or sticks? Stu Showerman, know Before's CEO, is definitely a carrot man, you train people, he argues, in order to build a healthy security culture, and sticks don't do that. Approach your people like the grown-ups they are, and they'll respond. Learning how to see through social engineering can be as much fun as learning how a conjuring trick works. You can hear more of Stu's perspectives in NoBefore's weekly CyberHeist News. We read it, and we think you'll find it valuable too. Sign up for CyberHeist News at nobefore.com/news. That's K-N-O-W-B-E, the number four, dot com slash news. Joe, uh, you recently uh, checked back in with Curtis Minder from GroupSense. You had a few questions,
2: some follow-ups. I did. When we first interviewed Curtis in the uh, Wallet Inspector episode, Curtis said $1.5 trillion is the annual amount of cybercrime that goes on. And I thought that was a very large amount. So Mm. Curtis and I had the opportunity to discuss that and, and break that amount down a little bit. It's a pretty good interview. All right. Here's Joe's
1: conversation with Curtis Minder.
2: I'm joined today by Curtis Minder. He's the CEO of GroupSense, and he is a previous guest on Hacking Humans. And during the course of that interview, Curtis said something that kind of piqued my interest, and he said that the cybercrime economy was over $1 trillion. The report you were referencing is actually a report from Bromium, which has since been acquired by Hewlett-Packard. And the report is called Into the Web of Profit, and it came from uh, Dr. Michael McGuire, and was sponsored by Bromium actually from 2018. Why don't you walk us through that report?
0: You know, it makes some broad brush claims about the categories of where cybercrime is occurring, but the lar- the larger number that we're talking about that comes out of that report and the one that I referenced in the previous, Episode, I actually sort of made a conservative version of that of 1 trillion, but the number that's referenced in the report is 1.5 trillion. And again, that was in 2018. Like I said, they they pulled that number from several broad categories of of different kinds of cyber crime. To put that in perspective, the reason I found that shocking was 1.5 trillion
2: is larger than all but 12 countries' GDPs. So if you're a country with an economy smaller than South Korea's economy, your economy is smaller than the cybercrime economy, the global cybercrime economy.
0: Yeah, that's I mean, to, to put it into that perspective, uh, that's, that's absolutely uh, mind blowing. But, you know, seeing what we see every day, I, I believe the numbers, you know, I can't say it's 100 it's percent accurate, but it's believable. So in the introduction of this
2: report there is a great table that breaks it down into some very broad categories like you said number 1 is the illicit and illegal online markets and that is about 860 billion dollars a year and that is the dark net markets that you were talking about earlier correct
0: right and i think the point when we say broad categories you know the types of transactions that occur there do have the what we would be you know familiar with as the typical enterprise Data theft, monetization scams, but there's all kinds of other cybercrime that occurs there that has a, a monetary value attached to it. And that ranges from human trafficking to traditional crime and, and, and what I would call kinetic threats. So it's it's a broad category.
2: Right. It also includes the illicit drug market that's conducted on a lot of these marketplaces exactly. as well. And then uh the next one down here is IP and trade theft. That was half a trillion dollars in trade secret and IP theft.
0: Yeah, and we do quite a bit of this IP monitoring for enterprise clients, specifically high-tech manufacturers, and this number is it's huge, but the amount of transactions we see in just our customer base uh, that occurs, a lot of it occurs in, in illicit marketplaces in China where it's very common for these types of transactions to occur, where they're actually either traded or sold, the intellectual property, so it's a believable number. What are they trading when they're on these marketplaces? It ranges from counterfeit to, in in some cases, we have a handset manufacturer as a customer that that manufactures mobile phones. Someone is basically getting high-resolution photos of components during the manufacturing process and trading those basically circuit board designs in these underground markets. So some of your
2: customers are actually very interested in protecting themselves from counterfeit goods, right? And that would include drug manufacturers and these uh, cell phone manufacturers we just talked about. That information is very valuable to the people that own it. And having it leaked out can be devastating.
0: Yeah. I mean, as you know, the the mobile phone businesses, uh, just to highlight that first quickly, is, is very, very competitive. And, and getting a device out uh, with some surprise, the, 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 the new features or the, the capability of the camera, all of these things are very secretive. <laughs> and a lot of these folks are having these devices manufactured in a lot of the same places. And with the drug scenario we're we're talking about large pharmaceuticals who certainly want to know when their drugs are being sold illegally especially at a volume level and even more care about if the drugs are being sold are counterfeit and have their name attached to them, that's a a very important use case for them. The next big topic here that they break it down is data trading. And they lump this
2: together with carding sites, stolen credit Mm -hmm. card data, banking, login, credentials, loyalty programs, and all that. They estimate that market is $160 billion a year, which is remarkably big for that is far more
0: than I would have thought for carding. It's carding and in, in data in general. The amount of of breaches that we hear about, you can imagine the amount of data that is available for sale. Some of that is useful, and some of that is not. I actually think that this number it doesn't fully capture the risk associated with this because you take, for example, the SBA PPP program or the the stimulus package that just came out for Covid. The fraud that will be perpetrated against that program will likely be powered by the data (laughs) that people are buying from this $160 billion underground trading market of of enterprise data. So that data is going to empower the fraud campaigns against the stimulus package to the banks, et cetera.
2: So this is where trading in FULZ comes into play, F-U-L-Z. That is the full collection of uh, uh, personally identifiable information, PII, about an individual. That's going to come in really, really handy in stealing these stimulus checks or or scamming somebody out of these stimulus checks.
0: Yeah, at the individual level, those types of dumps are absolutely a weapon to commit fraud. Uh, The enterprise data is also valuable. So if you think about if you're going to apply as a business for a loan, uh, having all of the information around an enterprise to fill out a false application and then have that money routed to another account is also a typical fraud use case. Um, what we've actually seen as part of the, uh, the fraud use cases, which is part of this, this underground crime economy, is they're selling fraud kits where they combine the data that is necessary to fill out, like, for instance, a loan application, and then the instructions on how to take that money and, and walk away anonymously. And so they'll sell the whole kit, the, the, the stolen PII or the stolen enterprise data, plus the loan application instructions, plus the how do you get the money where you need it sort of thing. You know,
2: one of the things that's missing from this that I don't really see on here is the individual scamming numbers, and I'm not sure that there's any good way to capture that information. First off, uh, it would require the capturing of information from all over the globe about everything that – about every fraudulent phone call that's going on. And I also think there is a huge portion of the scamming economy that is just not reported, that goes unreported.
0: Yeah, and a lot of it, like I said, just gets ignored in the noise. but you're you're right. It's not captured in the report, uh, at least it's not from a line item perspective. Um, and it's and it's massive. And similar to the fraud use case, a lot of the data that that we're seeing traded and sold or dumped in these markets, is also being used to facilitate or empower the scamming enterprise as well.
2: No, there's another data point on here that is kind of shocking to me, and that is that ransomware only accounts for one billion dollars in annual revenues.
0: Yeah, I, I suspect that that number is is uh, that's in 2018. Again, surprisingly low. I agree, but uh, I suspect that number is quite a bit larger in 2020. Right. <laughs> but also, a lot of the ransomware stuff for for many years goes unreported, almost like the scamming scenario. A lot of folks don't report it, especially if they are able to recover quickly with a backup or, and and a lot of times, sadly, the ransom just gets paid and no one talks about it. I think that number is gonna be hard to quantify going forward. I do know that one of of my theories is on dwell time is, you know, we have got all of these ransomware and phishing campaigns that are leveraging the COVID pandemic that have been carried out over the last, let's say, 30 to 45 days. So if you think about the the cyber dwell time of the of a threat actor uh inside someone's uh network it's you know it depends on which report you read but it's somewhere in the 80 to 85 day range i guess is what people are saying now yep. so i suspect with all logic it would say in let's say 40 days or so we will hear about a lot more breaches and in, in ransomware attacks all at once <laughs> Curtis, this is a lot of money to be moving around. Do you have any idea how
2: these guys move this stuff around
0: without attracting attention, or do they care even? Obviously, the players who are, who are dealing in volume dollars, they're all transacting in, in a cryptocurrency of some kind. The typical threat actor is laundering that money either through moving it through several different cryptocurrency platforms and or coin systems. So uh, they will convert from uh, some, some fraction of the money from Bitcoin to Monero and then Bitcoin to Litecoin, and then Litecoin back to Bitcoin, et cetera. And they'll do this several times. And in the process, it becomes very hard to track uh, from a digital wallet perspective. Even the most sophisticated systems would have trouble with that. The other thing that we've seen is a fair amount of traditional money laundering services being marketed to those sellers by other threat actors saying like, look, I own a legitimate business. This is what we do. And for this percentage, we will take a purchase from you, run it through our business, and then give you the net cash back there are actual threat actors who are actually using those dark net markets to sell to the bad guys saying like, I'm going to help you get your cash out of the system. So what's important to note about
2: this report is that this $1.5 trillion is just the money that these malicious actors get, right? It doesn't have any of the recovery costs
0: associated with it, correct? Right. So this is really focused on how much money these guys are making. Like you were referencing it to it or, or comparing it to it, like a GDP. So it's it's income, if you will. What I think is important to also note is is what is the impact of that cybercrime economy on everyone else? What is the cost? because uh, the cost is going to outweigh the net income from these guys by a lot. If, if you look at the average cost of a breach, which you know, depending on who you are, if you're a bank or whatever, those numbers vary, but they're pretty big numbers uh, typically. And Accenture and uh, the World Economic Forum did a study last year uh, that sort of illustrated that they thought that the damage from the cybercrime economy specifically was around $5.2 trillion. So it's significantly more than the economy itself.
2: That damage number, again, putting that in GDP perspective, only the US and China have bigger
0: GDPs than that. That's, that's mind blowing. <laughs> Absolutely mind blowing. That's a lot of damage. Exactly.
1: All right. Well, interesting stuff. And boy, Curtis lays it all out there. In some yeah. ways, I suppose it's, it's, it's as
2: bad or worse than what we suspected. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's worse than we knew. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that was possible. Uh, but it is. It's much worse. The $1.5 trillion is a huge amount. And this report does a really good job of breaking it down. Now, yeah. the vast majority of that, all, more than half of it, is actually $860 billion in illegal trade. Uh, mm-hmm. And that includes things like the buying and selling of illicit acts and illicit property, those kind of things, dark markets. And, and I'm surprised that that's as big as it is. Uh, another $500 billion in IP theft, uh, including counterfeit goods like phones. And this is absolutely terrifying. Drugs, counterfeit drugs. There's a reason we have the FDA, right? And every country on the planet has something similar to it, that- assures that the drugs you're getting are tested and they actually have a real benefit. And a counterfeit drug is I I think just one of the most dangerous things you can in- introduce to the marketplace. There is absolutely nothing that stops somebody some malicious actor from pressing out pills that look like like let's say my blood pressure medication. Yeah. Right. But actually aren't they they're just sugar pills. They and that's that's a good scenario, right? Where they're harmless. <laughs> right. Right, right, They're not rat poison. <laughs> They're not rat poison. Exactly. They're not yeah, strychnine. Yeah. And that's really a good a good example is that they used to use strychnine as a as a heart medication. I don't know if they still do, but in the days before nitroglycerin, they had to they used strychnine, which is a rat poison. In fact, warfarin, which is a blood thinner, is also used as rat poison. <laughs> <laughs> that shows one of the other risks is that warfarin is a very effective blood thinner, and it has advantages over other blood thinners, right? I'm not going to go into the details of it, but it has a clinical, medically usable dosage. And if you exceed that dosage, you can kill rats with it, and you can actually kill people with it. And the way it kills rats is it causes them to their blood to get, become so thin that they bleed out internally from any kind of contact. That's how hmm. it works. I'm not trying to scare anybody here, but Too man, late. the idea of counterfeit drugs just terrifies me to no end. But let's move on. Trading in printed circuit board designs. So one of the big issues with, with an international economy is that when you send – your design to be printed up somewhere else, and printed circuit board is a essentially a, a technique for making a, a cheaply and efficiently making these devices. Now, if you if you've ever opened up a device, I know we try not to get too technical in this show, but if you've ever opened up any device and you see one of those big green boards inside that has all these chips printed to it, that's a circuit board, a printed circuit yeah, board. Yeah, sure, sure. And those designs are proprietary. If I have a design for a like, let's say an IoT device, and I send that to China to be manufactured, there's not a lot of ways I can prevent an employee of that manufacturing firm just taking a picture with his iPhone, which is a, a high-resolution camera. Right? These camera phones have gotten to be remarkably good to the point where they're filming movies on iPhone cameras, and the, the Google Pixel cameras are also remarkably good as well. Uh, so. Just taking a picture on an assembly line can get me enough information to understand what's going on in this circuit board. And mm-hmm. then that becomes valuable and tradable in the dark net. Data trading is actually a very small amount, only one uh, $160 billion. Uh, I found that interesting. That's still a lot of money, but it kind of shows you how little our data is traded for on the market. This information, like the information that somebody bought that contains your dad's data, is cheap and easy to acquire. And then if you want to know how to do it, it costs you 20 to $30 for a full kit that, that will walk you through the entire process of scamming people out of money and then laundering that money. Mm-hmm. Ransomware is small but probably very unreported. Like I've said before, I'm fascinated by laundering, uh, money laundering. And one of the things that Curtis said here was how money is moved through different cryptocurrencies. Tracing transactions across a single cryptocurrency with a public blockchain like Bitcoin is relatively easy, right? I can see where mm-hmm. that money goes and I can apply banking laws to say, you know, the first piece of dirty money that comes in into that account means the next money that comes out of there is dirty as well, right? And I can I can do that. And that kind of helps when it comes to like tumblers and things like that. But tumblers do make it harder. But switching between cryptocurrencies, like like he says, going from Bitcoin to Litecoin to Monero, now it's become almost impossible to trace it. It becomes Mm. very difficult. And finally, the last point I wanted to talk about was his, uh, Curtis's mention of the the Accenture report, I think it was Accenture, that said they were estimating that the damages from cybersecurity losses were 5.2 trillion in 2019. Now that's, 3.5% 3.5% of global GDP in 2019. That's a hmm. huge percentage. So makes me think that cybersecurity spending is kind of worth it, right? Now, I might be biased, but I think it's <laughs> worth it. Um, but I, yeah. I, I want to thank Curtis for coming back on and clearing, clearing up some things for me and showing me this report. Actually, uh, it, it's the, the Bromium report. Bromium has since been acquired by HP, but you can still find it online. It's an interesting report. T- check it out. And, and thanks again to Curtis.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much uh, to Curtis Minder for joining us. And of course, we want to thank all of you for listening. A quick
2: program note, uh,
1: listeners of this show should check out our new CSO Perspectives podcast. That's hosted by Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief analyst. He's got a recent episode that explores the dark web, and that should be of particular interest to the listeners of this show. You can check that out on our website, thecyberwire.com. It's CSO Perspectives. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors. Know Before—they are the social engineering experts and the pioneers of new school security awareness training. Be sure to take advantage of their free phishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com/fishtest. Think of Know Before for your security training. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.